0: Now, if we look at the prevalence of those shapes across populations, what we know is that in athletic populations, around two-thirds of athletes will have that shape of bone regardless of whether or not they have pain. So it's actually more common in athletes to have that shape of bone than it is to not, and it seems to be very much in response to how much load they've done. So the shape of bone is probably telling you more about how much sport someone plays and has have played over the years than about whether or not they're likely to have hip pain. So, in athletes, it's it's more common than not, and and almost all athletes will have it.
1: Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We've teamed up with the Level Up Initiative to form the amazing Calu community. That's C A L U Calu Calu. We'll let you choose what side of the fence you're on there. Calu is what you get when you cross excellence in exercise prescription and communication skills within a biopsychosocial framework. Our mission is to raise the standard of healthcare, fitness, and human performance – and we do it through numerous community-driven educational opportunities. If you want to get involved, a great place to start is the Kalu Community Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. This podcast is also one way that we get the word out, and if you're one of our six listeners who enjoy the show, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get this information out to as many people as possible. In fact, pause this right now, click that five-star, give us a nice little review. Boom, duty fulfilled. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical Therapy in Orange County, California. On this show, I'm joined by co host John Flagg, who is a clinical athlete provider, certified athletic trainer, and online powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach, and the lead instructor of the clinical athlete powerlifting certification. And we're really excited to welcome on the show Joanne Kemp. Joanne is a senior research fellow. At the Latrobe Sports and Exercise Medicine Research Center at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. She's also a titled APA sports and exercise physiotherapist with 25 years of experience. And if you've kept up to date with any of the hip literature over the years, you've More than likely seen Joanne's name. She is an international authority on this subject. Seriously, not exaggerating, we're super, super excited and humbled that she's going to be on the show. We're going to talk about all things hip. We hope you enjoy. Joanne Kemp, thanks so much for being on the Clinical Athlete podcast.
0: Pleasure. Thanks for having me and inviting
1: me. We're really, really excited. Your work is um, cited all the time in our in our forums and and in different journal clubs that we do. And it was a no brainer to get you on the show. Um, maybe we start with you providing a little bit of background for our uh, trusty six listeners. Of this podcast into where you are right now in terms of the research that you do, what's led to your your current research interests and uh, and clinical interests in that regard?
0: Yeah, sure. So, I'm um, I'm a physiotherapist. I'm based in um, in Australia, in Melbourne, and I um, I'm a sports physio. So, I've been a sports physio for um, a long time now, over twenty five years. I um, and Currently researching, I'm a principal research fellow at La Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre. So our research centre is based at La Trobe University in Melbourne, and we um, do a lot of work in the lower limb space, um, so hips and knees, lower limb injury, and also in the women's sports space as well. So, how can we make you know sports safer for women athletes? My focus is very much around hip pain and um, in particular femoroacetabular impingement. So I completed my PhD several years ago now where I look specifically at people who had undergone hip arthroscopy surgery and what are their outcomes and what can we do to try and improve their outcomes and have now moved more into the non-operative management of hip pain space. So we have a number of projects going where we are looking at trying to optimise the non-operative management um, for people with hip pain broadly, but in particular for people with femoroacetabular impingement and trying to understand what the things are that perhaps um, make people's hip problems get worse over time versus those who get better over time. And then what are some of the treatments, particularly physiotherapy treatments that we can do to try and um, optimise their management, ideally help them um, avoid surgery if, if possible and, um, and and get them functioning as best as we possibly can
1: and you're still treating as well is that correct
0: yeah that's correct so I um, see I work clinically one day a week and primarily seeing patients with hip pain and all the things that go along with hip pain so there is an overlap you know from um, older people with hip arthritis people with um, gluteal tendinopathy through to athletes with femoroacetabular impingement younger people with with hip pain so hip pain right across the the lifespan really, and um, managing them from a physiotherapy
1: standpoint. I think that's that's what makes individuals like you so useful to the to the field is that you're still you're still in the trenches, so to speak. You know, treating patients, and then and then you're doing the work. You know, to, to try to ask and answer the the hard questions that are also going to push clinical practice forward. And so you're never removed, like too far removed from that clinical work is so, it's just so valuable uh, to talk to individuals like you. And I think FAI is is a good place to kind of start. Um, can you lay the groundwork a little bit? Because you you mentioned that you've transitioned your interests to non-operative management of FAI. Can we back up a little bit about and, and speak on surgical management of FAI over the last 10 or 15 years, how it's evolved from just the numbers of surgeries and what we've actually learned about the outcomes of the surgery? I know that's a lot, but.
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, they, yeah, so probably, I guess, FAI surgery or hip arthroscopy surgery for FAI became prominent probably 15 to 20 years ago. So there was, um, you know, just a small group of expert surgeons, surgeons, doing the work, so recognising that FAI was associated with the morphology where you typically see the extra bump of bone that develops on the junction between the head and the neck of the femur. And there was a school of thought that this bump was impinging into the acetabulum and that that was causing structural damage to the structures around the acetabulum, so the acetabular labrum and the articular cartilage. And that if you remove that bump of bone, then that may reduce the impingement and therefore allow freer movement and less impingement and therefore less damage. So that was sort of the rationale that underpinned the development of hip arthroscopy surgery. And so over the last 20 years, we've seen a huge increase in the numbers of hip arthroscopy. So across the world, um, it's become a really, really, there are a lot of surgeons really interested in hip arthroscopy. When you speak to the experts experts in hip arthroscopy, they say there's a really steep learning curve. So. You start off, it's, it's quite a technically challenging operation. It, it sounds simple, you, you think it's keyhole, but the hip is a spherical joint so it's really, really hard to get your instruments in and around those curved corners to access the areas of the joint that you need to. So it's a technically really challenging operation and the surgeons who do it well really are expert and have done hundreds and hundreds or thousands of these procedures. So it's really boomed in the last um over the last 20 years, but I think in the last 10 years in particular, as a treatment option um, for femoroacetabular impingement. And we've seen that reflected in the literature in that there's been an explosion in the number of articles that have been looking at that. And then most recently, there have actually been um, four clinical trials published that have, actually, have looked at the efficacy of hip arthroscopy surgery, which is a really big step forward because doing clinical trials in the orthopaedic space is really, really difficult. It's really challenging because it's not like a pill where it's easy to blind people to what the treatment is that they're having. So I really congratulate the um, the surgical teams around the world that have done those clinical trials because it is, it is really, really challenging. And that's given us some good information um, about outcomes for surgery. So it's really growing in popularity it's interesting. I think there's a perception in amongst patients. There are two, almost two different schools of thought. I think there are patients who really um, believe that surgery is the answer for them, and they are determined to have surgery. They have a picture of the mechanics of the hip, and they they don't believe that you can. They believe that you need to have that bump of bone taken off to really have a good recovery. And if you don't do that, there's no way you can recover. There's also another group of patients who are very averse to surgery and do not, you know, they really want to avoid surgery. And I think we have a responsibility to those patients to really give them good treatment options and try and allow them to optimise their function. The other thing is that there haven't been any studies done yet that have actually shown that taking off that bump of bone changes the outcome or changes the trajectory. We know that if you have that shape of hip, you are more likely to end up um, with hip arthritis in later life. But in saying that, that's the relative risk is greater, but it's still only really small numbers of people who have that shape of hip who go on to develop arthritis. So while the risk is higher, it's still only a small percentage who will go on to develop arthritis. And we don't know yet whether any of our treatments will change that trajectory so, will surgery change it? Is taking off the bump of bone likely to change it, but also do other treatments like physio change it as well and we really really we still have no idea whether or not we can change that trajectory or whether you're just on the path to arthritis having that bump of bone is part of that picture and that's just your I guess your destiny. We don't we don't know that. I'd like to think it's not that we can do things to try and improve whether or not that's the case but we still we still don't know. So if we talk about surgical outcomes from there, what we know from surgery is that um, firstly, there were case series done, which is just where you take a group of patients, you measure them before surgery, they have surgery and you measure them afterwards. And those um, case series showed large effect sizes, favoring surgery so that people got considerably better after they had surgery. Even, even in saying that, they still never returned to normal. So whilst people were considerably improved on what they were, they never got back to a normal functioning hip that never had problems again. And then the, what the clinical trials have shown is that there is, a, there is certainly a positive effect for surgery. So the clinical trials have either compared surgery to a non-surgical treatment, so a physiotherapy-type treatment, um, or to, there's been a recent clinical trial where two different types of surgery were compared, and and what they show is that certainly there is a positive effect for surgery, but the effect is um, what we would consider to be a small to moderate effect size. So there is some effect, positive effect for surgery, but it's not a large effect size. And so when we're talking to patients about surgery, I think it's important that they have really clear expectations on how much improvement they're likely to get. I I see patients in the clinic all the time, and they often come to you, and you know they're going to. They think they they want to have surgery, and they have an expectation that once they've had their operation and had things fixed, that they will be perfect and they will never have a hip problem again. And I think it's important that patients understand that going into surgery means that you will most likely improve, but you're not. You you will still have problems with your hip. It's not going to be a perfect hip because you can't take a hip that has that underlying um, structural. Wear and tear, and make it perfect. So, having good expectations when patients go into surgery is really important, and also for them to understand that obviously, with any surgical procedure, there's a risk associated with that, and there's a cost associated with that. There is a, a recovery time that can be anywhere, you know, up to up six to twelve months. So, again, I think there's an expectation. That it's a keyhole procedure, so they just go in, bit of work, quick, and then you're back to normal within a couple of weeks. That there is a long and slow rehab recovery that has to follow after surgery. And so having surgery doesn't mean you get out of doing your rehab. It just means that you still need to do it and probably your recovery may well be longer. So having those expectations for patients is um, is really, really important as well.
1: When I first came out of uh, school, it was about eight years ago, there was a big boom in the area of these surgeries and they were all like, depending on the surgeon that you went to, they were done differently. Sometimes they would snip the, the psoas tendon. Sometimes they like just different things like that. And to your point, the rehab is, is very up and down and it's very unpredictable. Um You know, you get six months in you do a hip flexor exercise and boom, all of a sudden the hips pissed off for the next month. And that's like, well, shoot. So, so would you say, So an athlete comes in and, and, or anybody, you know, thinking of this surgery and they have this expectation, oh, they're just going to go in. Uh, I saw, you know, I looked on Google and I saw these little, little incisions are super tiny. They're going to go in and trim some stuff and I'm going to come out feeling real good because, you know, my grandma had a, a hip replacement last year and she feels great. And, and they're, you know, they don't, the context is they're just putting all these things together. Would you say then it's accurate to just to tell them realistically, you may not, you you may not be a person who is just like somebody who've never had a problem. So you can't compare yourself to maybe your friends or your family members that have never had hip problems before, even after this surgery. Is that accurate?
0: Absolutely. That is absolutely 100% accurate. Yeah. And then depending on the severity of the change within the hip at the time of surgery, that will predict how well you're likely to go. So there's some good studies now that show if you do have reasonably significant changes to the cartilage within the hip um, at the time of surgery, that your likelihood of having a really good recovery is reduced as well. And your likelihood of being able to get back to sport is also reduced. So I think having that expectation is is really important. And some of our Danish colleagues um, led by... um, the group at the University of Copenhagen have found that after hip arthroscopy, returning to sport, whilst probably over half of athletes will return to the level of sport that they were playing before they had their surgery and before they had their injury they don't go back to the same level of performance within that sport. So they might be playing at the same level of competition in the same team, but they feel in themselves that they they don't go back to the same level of performance. So less than 20% of athletes will get back to the same high level of performance that they they had prior to their injury, um, even if they're playing at the same level of competition of sport. So even within return to sport, there's a lot of complexity about about performance and ability to, you know, have explosive speed, to change direction, to kick with the same sort of power. Those sorts of high-level sporting activities um, for a a large number of athletes don't ever go back to how they were prior to their injury.
1: Joanne, can you talk a little bit about imaging and prevalence? Because it's my understanding, and and obviously, please correct correct me if I'm wrong, but the diagnosis of, of FAI necessitates symptoms in the anterior hip region or groin region, um, symptoms with with testing such as a fader test, symptoms with with functional tasks, whatever that means to the person, and then a certain morphology within the hip. So all of those things kind of combined to come to the diagnosis of FAI. Can you talk a little bit about Base rates and, and prevalence of, of these morphology uh, changes that we see in both the general population and the athletic population, and then how that relates to how you manage the decision making for this population?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, that's a, such a great question, and it's so important to take that into, into context when we're working with these um, patients and athletes who have hip pain. So if we think about the morphology or the bone shape first and then we'll go on to some of the other changes that you see with FAO like label and cartilage pathology. So just thinking about the bone shape, what we know now about the about that bump of bone or CAM morphology that you typically see is it develops while um, during adolescence. So during that period of really rapid growth when kids are teenagers, so in girls sort of 10 to 13 years, in boys more 12 to 15 years, that something... For some reason in some people and it seems to be a genetic predisposition and related to how much loaded rotational activity you do during those years is it stimulates excessive bone growth at the growth plate that's still open at the head neck junction and so what happens is you get excessive bone at that growth plate and the growth plate almost extends out and gives you that bump of bone so it develops in those teenage years and once the growth plates closed at around 16 or 17 at the latest you don't see any more change to the bone shape. So that is what it is. Now, if we look at the prevalence of those shapes across populations, what we know is that in athletic populations, around two-thirds of athletes will have that shape of bone, regardless of whether or not they have pain. So it's actually more common in athletes to have that shape of bone than it is to not, and it seems to be very much in response to how much load they've done. So the shape of bone is probably telling you more about how much sport someone plays, and has, have played over the years than about whether or not they're likely to have hip pain. So in athlete, in athletes, it's it's more common than not, and, and almost all athletes will have it, but only a small number of those will ever develop pain. So I think that that's really important. If you look in the general non-athletic population, the prevalence is higher in those with hip pain than in those without, but it's still lower than in athletes. So in athletes, whether you have pain or not, around two-thirds will have the shape. In the general population, around half- of people who have hip pain have the shape and around a quarter of the population that don't have hip pain that are not athletes also have that bony shape. So, so it, is, it is very, very common. And we have to be really careful to not fall in the trap of thinking that the bone shape itself is a problem because it does just seem to be a normal response to load and to sport. But in some people, it seems to be associated with with pain and issues. So that's the bony shape. If we talk about the prevalence of the other um, changes that you see, so a particular label pathology and cartilage pathology, one of my colleagues, um, Josh Heary at La Trobe University, has led some really important work in this space over the last five years that has only just been published, where he's been following a large um, cohort of football players and has used MRI scanning to look at the prevalence of these pathologies um, in, in athletes and in football players. And really, really interesting is that his work, um, which was only just recently published, has shown that the prevalence of label pathologies and cartilage pathologies, again, is really common in these athletes. So more than half of them will have label pathologies or cartilage pathologies, and that the prevalence is pretty much the same in those with pain, Versus those without pain. So, and he's done this work in over, you know, looking at over three hundred hips, that the prevalence is really, really similar across um, across both groups, whether you have pain or not. So, again, you start start to see these changes that we've thought of as being problematic, but you see them in athletes that don't have pain as well as those that do. What we don't know is what happens to these athletes over time. So, do the ones right now who have these changes but don't have pain? Do they go on to become the people with pain later on? And that's what we, we don't know yet. We haven't been able to follow these athletes. We're in the process of following them over time and Josh is leading that work, but we haven't actually finished that work yet. So we don't have the answer yet as to whether, you know, maybe those cartilage and um, labral changes early on are the people who go on to develop arthritis later on, but we haven't actually had the opportunity to follow those same people over time. To work out whether that's the case or not. So it's complicated and it's tricky trying to, you know, imaging can give you a lot of information, but you can also overinterpret the Im- imaging and potentially over-diagnose someone and send them down a treatment pathway. That might not it might be the right treatment pathway for them, but it might not be as well. And we still we still don't have the answers to that yet.
1: Is there any talk within the expert circles of Altering the diagnostic criteria in any way whereas um thinking about what you just said with the base rates being so high in certain populations, but then the diagnosis of f a i being necessitated with imaging, and mm-hmm. these kind of these concepts kind of budding a little bit is is there talk about changing those things
0: look there's not at the moment um and I think the, the the key with the diagnosis of, of FAI is you have to have symptoms. So what happens, so if someone comes into my clinical practice and I think they have FAI, most of them will have already been given a scan by somebody else who, who said that they needed a scan, so I'll have that scan available. If they don't have a scan and I think they have FAI, Do I send that patient off for a scan to confirm that diagnosis? In the clinical practice, I probably wouldn't unless I was suspicious that there's something that's really problematic because you can take together the pieces of their history, you know, how much sport they played when they were a kid, do they have a family history of hip problems, and put that that together with the clinical examination and also where their pain is. You know, they have that pinching kind of pain at the front of their hip. To be fairly suspicious that they have FAI and... You don't necessarily need to get imaging as a clinician to confirm that diagnosis, but most patients who come to you will probably have already had the imaging, um, the imaging done anyway. But in terms of the the diagnostic classification, there isn't any talk at the moment of changing that. I was lucky to be part of um, the Zurich consensus, which was published last year, that um, the paper that Mike Raymond led, where we took that classification a little bit further, and we um, we said that. People who have hip-related pain or pain that's coming from the hip joint that's non-arthritic pain can be classified as either FAI syndrome, hip dysplasia slash hip instability or other pathology where the morphology is normal. So FAI syndrome, they have that abnormal pathology. Hip dysplasia, you have that abnormal acetabular sort of pathology and then you can have other problems but still have the normal bone shape. So that was, I guess, taking that classification one step further. But yes, the classification of FAI syndrome still has imaging as a a key part of the classification. And for research purposes, you would be expected to have imaging to to say someone has FAI syndrome. In the clinic, on an individual patient basis, it's not something you need to necessarily do for all your patients to then say they have FAI syndrome and choose the appropriate treatment for them.
1: There's a lot to consider there as a clinician when you're kind of having that, that conversation with somebody who's, who's inquiring about, you know, should I, what do you think about the surgery or, or should I get the surgery? You know, what are your thoughts? When you get those tough questions, what are some determinants, maybe big rock determinants for the clinician to steer one way or another? Or, or are we just thinking in terms of time? you know, we we feel you've really put in months and months of this conservative care and we're not getting anywhere and, and that's kind of what helps us steer the decision-making or are there other determinants along those lines?
0: So uh, that's such a really a really good question, um, Quinn, and I think that time is a really big part of it. We know from the literature and from the work that we've done that even the best quality non-surgical sort of exercise-based treatment program in the world isn't going to achieve what it should achieve in six weeks. It takes a good three months for it to really, really be effective. So you need to allow people enough time to actually give it a go and 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 tell people at the start that you're going to be at this for a good three months before we have a really clear idea. We should be seeing improvements over that time, but we really want to give it a good three months before we call definitively whether or not it's, it's going to... Um, work for you and and achieve the outcomes that you want to achieve. So, And then you also need to be confident that over that time, you know, someone might come to you and say, I've done physical therapy treatment for the last six months, but what they've been doing is, um, you know, having some massage and some heat treatment or electrotherapy treatment and doing a few stretches and a few clamshell exercises. And, And, you know, you would not consider that to be good treatment. So you've done six months of stuff, but you can't say, oh, well, physiotherapy physiotherapist-led treatment, physical therapist-led treatment isn't going to work. So it needs to be three months of high-quality treatment that we think is going to be effective. So, And I don't think there's any harm in every patient doing that because even if they end up needing to go to surgery, it's going to be beneficial to have tried to optimise their function and their strength as best as they can prior to going to surgery. So that is the number one criteria. There's a little bit of evidence that suggests if someone has a really, really large... um, Cam morphology, so a really big bony bump that perhaps they don't do as well with non surgical treatments than surgical treatments. So, but we're talking, you know, alpha angles over 85, so huge bumps. Um, but the evidence on that is not strong. So, there is some preliminary ev- evidence there, but it's not high quality evidence. So, even in those patients, so you'd still be wanting to try that non surgical treatment program. If somebody has really sick, if you know already and that, that they have. Significant cartilage wear and tear, then um, sort of widespread cartilage changes, sort of looking like arthritis, they will not do as well with an arthroscopy. So for those patients, they are going to be probably better sticking with an exercise-based program, recognizing they might eventually go down the path of hip replacement surgery. But you know, a lot of people don't want to do that, and fair enough too, rightly so. But for those patients, it's really important. that and, and the problem is with those patients is they're the ones that are harder to treat and don't do as well. So they often are looking for answers like surgery. So, um, But an arthroscopy probably isn't going to be as good for those patients um, because of the underlying wear and tear. So, <coughs> excuse me, I think um, the other thing that we need to consider with these patients is they often have a lot of synovitis, So a lot of information within the joint and inflammation in the hip seems to be more problematic, say, than other joints like the knee. So it may be that we need to look at um, pharmaceutical strategies to sort of augment our exercise-based treatments to assist with that. So looking at liaising with patients, um, physicians and, and GPs and doctors to talk about whether there is an appropriate medication that might be useful to help reduce pain and inflammation to then facilitate their exercise as well. So don't be frightened to 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 work with the physician to to help settle inflammation too, because that can be a really, really um, big problem as well for these patients. But, yeah, I think for everybody, giving them enough time to do a really high-quality rehab program is one of the most important things that you can do.
1: Hey, y'all. Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from our awesome conversation with Joanne Kemp about all things hip. As you're listening to all the brain gains here, you might be thinking – Gosh, wouldn't it be awesome if there was a free community that I could bounce ideas off of, refer to trusted providers, jump on live journal clubs and case studies and student calls and more cool stuff like that. Oh, wait, that exists. It's the Kalu Community Facebook group. So if you haven't already, go to the link in the show notes. Join that Facebook group, read the pin announcement, introduce yourself, read the units that we've compiled for you with the Calu mission, and some awesome Calu Star Pack materials, including must-listen-to podcasts and must-read papers. Check that link in the show notes. And now, back to the interview with Joanne Kemp. That high-quality rehab program, I think, is key there, because like you said, you could spend a year doing a a quote unquote rehab program, but you know, what's contained within that can matter. So I think that's a nice segue to kind of talking about that and whether it's conservative care pre-op or as a way to, to try to uh, steer away from a surgery, or if it's, you got the surgery and now we have to rehab, what are some best practices in terms of physical rehabilitation for this population?
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I think educating the patient is 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 key to start off with. And and, and and so laying the foundations for them to be engaged in the rehab and be prepared that it will take time and it takes effort as well. So educating them about what their likely gains and improvements are is important, which we've already touched on with surgery. Talking to them about that it is normal to have a bit of pain and to have some flares with pain. And not to, because patients often freak out when they get pain and they think that they're causing more damage, you know, they're breaking the cartilage or, you know, breaking off the labrum and things. So, educating them that flares of pain are really normal and can be managed. And it, and if you have a flare of pain, it doesn't mean you stop exercising, that exercise can actually help relieve pain and reduce pain as long as it's managed appropriately but exercising within appropriate pain limits so making sure the pain's you know 2 or 3 out of 10 max it's fine to exercise within those limits if if it's more than that perhaps you need to back off a little bit so educating them around pain and around flares is also really important talking to them about modifying their activities and what they're doing, often patients with FAI syndrome will find that sitting for long periods is really, really challenging. And if they can reduce their the amount of time that they spend in sitting through the day and we all seem to spend our day sitting nowadays, what that means is that the overall time in impingement is reduced and so they might then be able to go and comfortably play soccer or football or you know whatever their sport is where they are going into the impingement position, because the overall amount of time they've spent in impingement is less through the day, so their hip can cope with it. So, reducing, you know, um, sitting time can actually help them achieve other goals that they might want to achieve. So, the education piece is really, really important. And then, in terms of um, what, what does a good quality, so we've talked about the exercise program, what does a good quality exercise program look like? We can use our strength and conditioning principles to help guide that. So, we know that you should be doing sort of strengthening type exercises, probably two to three times a week for them to be effective. So letting patients know that they're going to be doing these exercises two to three times a week and trying to build it into a normal fitness routine. So I really try and encourage my patients to not think about it as, um, you know, home rehab exercises, but to think about it more as part of their fitness and strength training. And because that's what we all should be doing to be healthy people is we should be doing regular physical activity, which includes strength training. So aiming for the strength the strength component of the rehab program two to three times a week and then also um, making sure that they're incorpor- incorporating regular physical activity as well. So whether it's swimming or walking or bike riding or whatever they can do comfortably is important. And then what actually goes into that two to three times a week strength program It should be a combination of strengthening muscles around the hip um, and we'll talk in a minute specifically which muscle, you know, which groups of muscles to focus on. Trunk strengthening is really important and we often forget about the trunk, but the trunk controls the position of the pelvis and the acetabulum sits in the pelvis. And so trying to make sure that that the acetabular position is is optimised, you can do that through trunk control. So strengthening up the trunk muscles is really important. Doing some functional strength is really important as well. So not being frightened to look at exercises like squats and lunges and step-ups done in a safe range of motion can be really, really important as well. And and strengthening up the rest of the body, so not forgetting, you know, lower limb strengthening, quad strengthening, calf strengthening, um, upper body strengthening is, is really, really important. So giving someone a good overall strength and conditioning program Is critical. And then if we come back to the hip muscles specifically, what we know from the literature and the work that we've done is the hip adductor muscles are probably actually one of the most important muscle groups to strengthen. And I think as um, PTs, we're great at strengthening up glutes and abductors, but we forget about the adductors. So I always make sure that I include some really, really good quality adductor strengthening exercises using bands or cables, Exercises like the Copenhagen side plank um, is a really, really good one. Adding and then strengthening up hip flexors and extensors is really important. And adding weight to those exercises, so one of my favourites is just a standard hip thruster or, or bridge with a heavy weight on the pelvis. Can really it it, it does it, patients love it. It doesn't hurt them to do it, and it has a really, really strong effect at, at strengthening up through through hip extensors, um, etc. So hip flexors and extensors, adductors. And then hip abductor strengthening is an interesting one is I often don't specifically give abductor strengthening exercises because I find if you're doing functional exercises and single leg exercises, that's already built in 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 doing those exercises. So um, you do need to consider it, but you're often getting that effect without needing to give specific abductor strengthening exercises. And then plyometrics, jumping and landing is critical for these patients too. They're often really frightened to jump and land, but once they, once they get over their fear, that's a really, really important part of returning them to sport as well. So adding in that sort of plyometric jumping and landing program. And I think the other thing to say is that in the early stages of rehab, rotation, rotation movements can be quite aggravating to these patients when they have a lot of pain and probably staying away from rotation and then just working in the in the frontal plane and the sagittal plane to start with and then building that rotation back in later on once their pain settled down and their strength's improved and and trying to make it functional for their return to sport programs. Whereas often these, when I see these patients, they've been given other exercises and they've only been given rotation exercises. So they're given things like clamshells where you're rotating your hip up and down or Theraband exercises where you're turning your leg in and out, and they're wondering why they as they're still in a lot of pain and they're not getting stronger. It's because that the actual rotational movement can be really, really aggravating to hips when they're in that early, really inflamed stage. So steering clear of that initially, and then building it in later on. Once you've got someone really, really strong in all those other component, components, can be important as well.
1: I absolutely love Copenhagen's. I love. Love that exercise. Um, I want to circle back just a little bit. You talked about the the previous classifications, and I know working with a lot of young clinicians, one of the things they focus on is getting the diagnosis right. Like it's it's really this it's it's hammered into them in PT school and in all their clinicals. Like you have to get the diagnosis right. And you mentioned with FAI, like yeah, you might not have to ask for imaging, but clinically speaking, you can look at these these three different things would you change that high-quality rehab approach based off whichever bucket they land in in regards to those those uh, categories or would it stay relatively the same?
0: So, yeah, so that's a really, really great question about diagnosis. And we, we have to be, if we go back a step from there, we have to be really careful with these patients that often um, – If someone has a history of of cancer, we have to look for red flags like that because it will often metastasize to the hip. So ruling out the red flags is really, really important. So I think making sure you do that thoroughly before you get into a diagnosis is important. We also need to rule out um, referral from the lumbar spine and from other areas as well. So there are a number of different ways that you can do that. So let's assume that you've ruled out red flags and you've also ruled out... um, referral from other areas such as the lumbar spine, um, then if we think, yes, this pain is definitely hip pain, does the diagnosis matter um, so much for a high quality rehab program? It matters a little bit, but not a lot. So I think probably if conditions such as hip dysplasia, where you have really excessive range of motion, um, it's important that we're clear whether we think someone is more in the dysplastic camp where they have too much movement versus the impingement camp where they have limited movement because I think that perhaps guides your treatment a little bit differently into whether how much you focus on mobility and trying to control ranges of motion. But other than that, the high-quality rehab program is going to be reasonably similar um, regardless of the cause of pain. So whether someone has FAI syndrome where they have that CAM morphology or they have a label tear, but they don't have the CAM morphology, we're still going to be probably approaching the rehab program in a fairly similar way. The activities that they can do and the way they do them might change a little bit because with FAI syndrome, you do tend to have that pain more at the limits of range of motion. So you may alter the way you approach activity modification, but otherwise it's going to be a fairly similar program in that our focus is very much on educating the patient about what to expect and, and Um, the sorts of things that they should be focusing on, that they need to do a good quality strength program two to three times a week, that they also need to do regular physical activity, that they need to be respectful of their pain but not afraid of their pain um, in terms of their exercise, and then really trying to focus on those key strengthening elements, so looking at trunk strength, looking at hip muscle strength, as we just discussed, looking at the ability to jump and land properly, looking at functional strength, so being able to squat and and lunge and do step-ups and looking at the global you know global bodily function is really really important as well so diagnosis matters to an extent but even if, you, if if you know you're a clinician that's fairly new and you're not 100% sure that you've got your diagnosis right in terms of is it fai syndrome or is it something else i think you can still go ahead reasonably confidently developing a good quality rehab program and um, and and monitor and progress that patient appropriately over time as long as you have ruled out those red flags and those other possible causes of
1: pain. Joe, what's on the horizon in regards to uh, research coming out in this area and particularly work that you're doing? Cause I know there's some, some things that are in the works um, that'll be coming out soon and possibly in regards to exercise prescription or uh, non-op management otherwise. So what's on the horizon for you?
0: So we've, yeah, we're um, very excited. We've been running a large clinical trial for the last three or four years, which is a clinical trial um, called the PhysioFirst Study, which is a trial looking at what is the best exercise-based physiotherapist-led treatment for people with FAI syndrome. So in that clinical trial, we recruited just over 160 patients and they were randomised to one of two different treatments and um, and the treatments basically were both a six-month, Physiotherapist-led intervention. What they did within that program is what differed between the two groups. So within that study, we um, we got a little bit uh, mucked up by COVID. So we had almost finished our recruitment when COVID hit and everything shut down here just over twelve months ago. So we had to stop our recruitment a little bit short of our target, but only a few patients short. So that was lucky. The last few patients, we had to change their treatment a little bit, so they did quite a bit via telehealth rather than face-to-face treatment, but we've almost finished our follow-up now on those on all of those patients. So we're looking at um, analysing the data and writing those trials up in the second half of 2021 and hopefully publishing that sometime during 2022. So that's going to, that'll be the first large full-scale trial that has specifically compared done a head-to-head comparison of two physiotherapist-led interventions. So really really excited about that coming out so that's kind of that's sort of our big focus at the moment and then we also have a n- number of other studies so we talked earlier about the imaging study and the work that my colleague Josh Heary has done. So in those patients what we're doing now is we're at the point where we are doing their two-year um, we have all of their two-year follow-up data so looking at what happens to their MRI scans over time in both people with pain and without pain. And we're also looking at getting five-year data on those patients. So, that's going to help us answer that question that we talked about earlier as to whether or not um, you, you know, what does it mean? What do these changes early on, you know, the cartilage changes and the label changes mean for patients? Do they then go on to develop pain or do some of them go on to get worsening, worsening pain or, you know, do their MRIs get worse over time? So, that's going to help us really answer the questions around well, what are the causes of arthritis in the hip and are there, are there certain things that we can look at to target to try to try and change that and then we also have some other <coughs> excuse me interesting projects in people with more advanced hip disease so more middle aged populations and older populations looking at how can we in those people who have more advanced disease in the hip and you know moving into arthritis, how can we try and optimize their treatments and hopefully help them avoid surgeries because, you know, the rates of hip replacements are going through the roof. Um, people are getting younger and younger having hip replacements. Hip replacements are fantastic surgery for people who need it, but, you know, are there ways that we can stop some people from actually needing to go down the path of hip replacement? So we're doing some work to try and optimise the the non-surgical treatments for, for older adults as well who perhaps you know have their hip disease has progressed more than you would like. So lots of different things going on but very much looking forward to the results of our physio first trial coming out hopefully next year.
1: Well, we're going to have to get you on again to talk about that. You kind of set yourself up for it.
0: Uh, that would be great. I'd love to do that.
1: Okay, perfect. You didn't have a choice. We have to. <laughs> uh, yeah, super that's that's super exciting because those are uh, will help us answer a lot of the questions that we talked about here. It's it's mm. And it's pretty cool that you're you're doing the work. So I can only imagine the, the angst of talking about these things. And then, like, you know, these trials are kind of in the works, too. Um, so that's awesome. This has been really, really informative. I really appreciate – we really appreciate you coming on. Um, like I said, we're going to have to get you on again because there's so much more to talk about. Where can people – follow you? Where can they connect with you? Or if they want to follow uh, the work that you have, anything like that?
0: So so um, you're welcome to connect on Twitter. So I'm at Joanne L. Kemp on Twitter. Very happy to engage on Twitter or for people to send me a private message as well. Also really happy to be contacted via email. So my email address is the letter J. Kemp K-E-M-P, at latrobe.edu.au, so really, really happy to um, be contacted via email, and then, we, yeah, we have a number of different, um, you know, publications that I think are pretty easy to find. Our Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre has a blog page as well, so um, if you just search up Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre, it'll take you to the blog page, so you can sort of keep up with our activities there as well.
1: And, you're, and you have a research gate and a Google Scholar page as well,
0: is yep. that correct? That's correct, yep.
1: Awesome. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes. Um, thanks again for coming on with us and having this conversation. Uh, John, always a pleasure, my friend. Of course, really appreciate it. I've got a couple athletes dealing with some hip pain like this, and it's it's one of those things I love talking about it and hearing about it because that experience is very universal for the them suffering from it. So.
0: Yeah, great. No, thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed um, enjoyed the chat, and very happy to chat again in the future.
1: One last thank you to Joanne Camp for the great information and conversation about the hip. You can check out the show notes for ways to connect with Joanne and follow all of her work. And of course, thank you to my homie, John Flagg, for being my co-pilot today. And thank you, the clinical athlete and Calu communities, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And one more time, go to the link in the show notes, join the Calu community Facebook group for all of the networking and all of the brain gains. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.